Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, your bulletin will say Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. But as I was working on this, I realized, you know what, I'm taking too big a step here because verses 11 through 16 are based on what happens in verses 1 through 10. And so next week we're going to look at those important verses but, and talk about the, the church is edification. So I'm doing a series right now on the church's covenant. And our church covenant says we promise to do four things in our church covenant. We promise to exalt God in worship. We've talked about that for the last few weeks. We promise to edify one another to live distinctively Christian lives. That's what we're going to talk about today. Ephesians chapter 4, let me read. I'll read the first seven of those verses. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Sometimes I hear people say things like, well, don't give me all that doctrine. I'm not interested in that stuff. Just tell me how to live. Give me something practical. But doctrine is practical. In all of his major letters, the Apostle Paul starts by telling us what God is like and what he's done for us. That's doctrine. See? And then he goes on to tell us how to live in the light of that. So in our passage, Paul is urging us to live in a particular way. Well, why? Because the Lord is a particular kind of God. That's doctrine. It's because the Lord is the kind of God described in the end of chapter 3, totally capable and currently at work among his people, that it makes sense to live the way Paul describes in chapter 4. So doctrine informs practice. Now notice verse 1. Paul makes his appeal as the prisoner of the Lord. The phrase rendered of the Lord is one of Paul's favorites. He uses it 48 times in his letters. 48 times. Where it's usually translated, in the Lord. Paul thought of himself as living in association with Jesus. He was in the Lord, and nothing could reach him without first coming through the Lord. If he was an apostle, he was an apostle in the Lord. If he was a prisoner, he was a prisoner in the Lord. If he suffered, he suffered in the Lord. If he rejoiced, he rejoiced in the Lord. You can see how doctrine affected his practice. Thinking that way meant he was never alone, never exposed, and never doing his own thing. He was with the Lord and in the Lord and for the Lord. I believe, and others have found it so, that it's possible for us to live that way too. So when you're stranded in an airport, for example, you can live this way. Paul wasn't a prisoner for the Lord. I can be a pastor for the Lord and a husband for the Lord. You can be a mechanic for the Lord or a teacher for the Lord. You can be a doctor for the Lord. You can even be a patient for the Lord. 
you can live your life with and in and for the Lord. Now, Paul's going to urge these church members to do just that. But it's important to realize that the relationship that they have with each other, he wants them to live for the Lord in their relationships. It's important to realize that the relationship they have with each other grows out of the relationship that they have with him, with God. And it's founded and grows out of his character. Too often people try to form Christian community without Christ. And they end up either in a social club or on a battlefield. The kind of Christian community that Paul desires, that he's going to talk about in this chapter, will only be realized in practice when people meet each other in the Lord, in his presence and for his sake. You can learn to do that. There's a remarkably strong emphasis on calling in this passage. A very literal translation of verse 1 would go like this. I, the prisoner in the Lord, call on you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Three times Paul uses that root word in just a few, in one sentence. It's important to remember to whom he's writing. Church members. This calling he's talking about has nothing to do with taking holy orders or being ordained to the ministry. He's writing to church members, to John and Mary and Tim and Priscilla, to people who have jobs and cook meals and raise kids, who live in a workaday world. The people to whom he's writing probably never going to preach a sermon. They didn't have a rabbinical training. They didn't have a Ph.D. in religious studies or a master's of divinity degree, but they did have a calling. And you, if you're in the Lord, have a calling. It's one of the most important things about you. You have a personal calling to serve Jesus in your world, and that calling comes with the gifts and resources that you need to fulfill it. The writer Frederick Buechner describes your calling as the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That calling is your door to joy and purpose. But the calling that Paul has in mind is also a corporate calling. We at Lockwood have a shared call to serve Christ in this community. Jesus is calling us to do something that he's not calling other people to do, something special, and he's gifted us in a unique way to fulfill that calling. Now, he's gifted the Baptists and the Nazarenes and the Methodists and others too, and they have their own calling. But he's gifted us and resourced us in a slightly different way to fulfill our distinct calling. It's when we answer that call that things really start to happen, that we come alive When we respond to our calling, we find ourselves right at that intersection of our gladness and the world's hunger, and we make a difference. Paul calls us to live a life worthy of our calling. Now, what does he mean by that? A literal translation might help. Make sure your life is brought into balance. That's the original meaning of the word that's translated worthy. Worthy. 
Make sure your life is brought into balance with your calling. So, maybe you grew up in a house where racial bigotry was just part of your family's culture. It's taken for granted. I grew up in that house. Maybe you did too. Does racial bigotry balance with your calling as Jesus' person at Lockwood Church? No. So you need to bring your life into balance with your calling and rid yourself of racism. Maybe you grew up in a house where you were taught that money is the be-all and end-all of existence. Does love of money balance with your calling as Jesus' person at Lockwood Church? No. You have to bring your life into balance with your calling and get rid of the love of money. Live a life in balance with your calling. That means that some things are going to need to be jettisoned from your life to achieve balance. And it means some things are going to have to be added to your life. Well, how do I know which? What does it take to live this life that's in balance with my calling? It takes, now verse 2, complete humility and gentleness. Or some translations render that meekness. It takes patience and a love-motivated willingness to put up with others. That's what Paul means when he says, and bear with one another. Now, think about it. If I'm going to live a life that's in balance with my calling, I am going to need your help. Because, frankly, I am blind to things in my own life that are unbalanced. I just can't see them. I really can't. Anger may be getting in the way of my calling, but I can't see that. All I see is other people's faults. So I need you to tell me about it. But if I'm not completely humble, guess how that's going to work out? See where this fits? Maybe my relationship with my wife and kids is suffering because I'm a workaholic. But I can't see that. All I can see is that I'm working hard for my family and nobody appreciates it. I don't see that I'm an absent father and husband and that my absence is taking a toll on my family. I need you to help me. But I'm going to need to be meek to receive your help. And I'm going to have to be patient because you'll probably need to help me over and over again on this issue. And you're going to need to be patient as well with me. You know what? People love the idea of Christian community. I mean, it, it sounds so communal. It just sounds so friendly and nice. Right now in theological and in, in ecclesiastical circles, community is all the rage. People are writing books on community. But if we're going to really do community the way God intended, it's going to be the most, one of the most challenging things we've ever done. It'll require humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and love. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is living that way will produce in us humility, meekness, forbearance, patience, and love. But how many people really want to be made humble? So in the context of our individual and our corporate calling, and under the weight of the apostles' appeal, we must, this is verse 3, make every effort to 
keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. Because if you're going to live in biblical community, the bond of peace is going to be challenged. It's going to be stretched. A literal translation might go, hurrying to keep the oneness of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We must hurry, never hesitate to protect the bond of peace. In verse 1, where Paul calls himself the prisoner in the Lord, he literally says, I, the person in bonds in the Lord. And now he subtly says to the Ephesians, I'm not the only one in bonds. So are you. You're in bonds with the bond of peace, a bond you mustn't break. The biblical word for peace entails more than the absence of discord. It has the idea of wholeness and health. The bond of peace is characterized by healthy, honest relationships. And the first of those healthy, honest relationships is with the Lord himself, who is our peace. A peaceful relationship with people. So think in terms of spouse, parent, friend, fellow church member, co-worker. A peaceful relationship with them extends from a peaceful relationship with the Lord. If you're not at peace with another person and you want to change that, the first thing to do is not go to the other person, but to go to the Lord. Your peace towards them will extend out of your peace with him. If we're going to build one another up to live distinctively Christian lives, one of our covenant promises, we will do it as people who remember our calling and are trying to live it out. And we'll do it as people who are resolutely committed to keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's in that environment, one of purpose, we have a shared purpose, and of peace, that the work of edifying, of building up one another, can take place. If the environment is instead that of a spiritual hurricane, as it is in lots of churches, the idea of building others up just goes out the window. You don't build in a hurricane. You hunker down, and that's just what many church members are doing. And so they miss their calling. This happens in an environment of peace and purpose. And don't think it's the pastor's responsibility to do all these things, or the staff's or the elder's job. Fulfilling the church's calling and guarding its peace is our job. It won't work otherwise. can't work because God didn't design it that way. He designed the church to need each person's, to need your contribution. We're in this together. When a church fails which sometimes happens. Actually, I just read an article yesterday on whether churches ought to be selling to mosques because so many churches close should they sell their building to a mosque. That was the idea. Sometimes churches fail. And when that happens, people often point the finger of blame at the pastor or at the elders or at the board. And heaven knows the pastor and the elders and the board may be blameworthy. But a church that can fail because of the actions of one person or one group, is a church that's already failed. They fail because they're not in it together. And that's the point of verses 4 through 6. We individually and as a church are part of a unified purpose and plan. One body, one spirit, one hopeful calling, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, our individual calling is lived out in the framework of our corporate calling. Our diversity is set in the framework of our unity. See, unity without diversity is boring. God's the least boring person, by the way, you'll ever meet. Unity without diversity is boring. Diversity without unity is bungling. Of course, God knows that, and he designed the church to have both. In Paul's Greek, that's strikingly clear. The last word of verse 6, which is repeated four times in that verse, is the word all. The first word of verse 7 in Greek is the word one. Diversity and the framework of unity. All for one, one for all. Now, we're beginning to see how our individual callings fit into our larger calling as a church and how that fits into our covenant promise to edify, to build each other up, to live distinctively Christian lives. I said earlier that when God calls a person, he resources that person to fulfill the calling. We see that in verse 7. Look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. The grace Paul is talking about is an enablement or empowerment from God to fulfill our calling. That enablement is elsewhere in the New Testament in Paul's letters, referred to as a grace gift, a charismatas in Greek, or a spiritual gift, a pneumatikas in Greek. The Greek here emphasizes that each one of us has been given at least one of these graced gifts. Paul's not here saying that pastors or church leaders have been gifted, but that every one of us has been gifted. Now, I say that, but to be resourced in this way, you have to be one of us. And the way you become one of us is not by attending services or giving money or even by becoming a covenant partner or member. You become one of us by confessing Jesus as Lord and trusting your life to him. And until you become one of us, until you join us in trusting God and following Jesus, you lack the spiritual resources needed to serve the church. You may want to do it, but you're going to lack the resources that are needed. In this passage, Paul goes on to to quote Psalm 68, and he's thinking about what happened to Jesus. Jesus dying, rising, and ascending into heaven. Usually when we think of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, we do so in terms of forgiveness and eternal life. But the scripture takes a much more comprehensive view. What God accomplished through Christ is bigger than we know and better than we imagine. Through Christ, through his death, resurrection, and ascension, God disarmed enemies. He reconciled the alienated. He defeated the devil. He overcame death. And our passage gives yet another result of what God did through Christ. He gave grace gifts to men and women to build up the church that he loves. It's hard to overstate God's love for the church. He's totally committed to the church. He reacts to insults to the church the way a bridegroom reacts to insults to his bride. 
The Bible is very clear about what will happen to people who try to harm God's church. If anyone destroys God's temple, Paul says, and in the context, he is clearly talking about the church, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. God loves his church. He has plans for his church. He has equipped and resourced his church for success, and he's done that by the gifts he's given you. You. If God's church is going to be edified, built up, strengthened, matured, it'll be because people like you have put the gifts that God has given to good use. And when I talk about God's church being built up, I'm not talking about an organization called Lockwood Community Church, Inc., Still less am I talking about our church buildings. I'm talking about God's church, about you and me. I'm talking about us together. Each one of us, the people who live by faith in Jesus, has without exception received a gift to use for the sake of God's church. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you've received a gift to use for his church. Now, you may say, but I can't speak in front of people. That doesn't matter. God has given you a gift to share with his people. It's probably not a speaking gift, but it's an important one. By the way, if you had told me after I got out of college that God had given me a gift to do this, I would have said, sorry, that is totally not me. So God may have given you that gift. You may say, but I don't know what gift I have. Guess what? That doesn't matter either. Whether you know about your gift or not, you have one. You may say, well, maybe I do have a gift, but I know it's not anything special. That doesn't matter. Special or not, it is needed. A chandelier may be more special than a 20-amp breaker, but if the breaker isn't working, neither is the chandelier. Each of us, without exception, has received a gift to use for the sake of the church. Someday you'll stand before God Almighty and he's going to ask you what you did with it. If the church is going to be built up in this place and time, it will be because we put those gifts to use. And we're going to have to be proactive about it. Now, we're going to have to talk to God. And we're going to have to talk to church leaders. And we're going to to say, what is the gift I have? I want to use it. We're going to have to look for ways to make a difference and bless others. By the way, you usually don't find your gift by looking for your gift. You find your gift by looking for how you can serve. That's how it happens. And when you see how to serve, you're going to need to jump in and do it. We're going to have to look for that intersection between our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger and go to work right there. We're going to have to use the gifts that God has entrusted to us. Unfortunately, many people do not. Many people don't even think about it. They hide their gift or they put it on a shelf and they forget about it. Or they say, "Eh, it doesn't matter anyways, not much. I read something this week that made me think about this. This was in Harvard Business Review, which I don't usually read, but I was looking for something. According to statistics, it's estimated that this year, 40% of all shoppers will purchase a department store gift card 
for friends and family, Walmart gift card or Meyer gift card or something like that. Another 33%, so one out of three shoppers, will buy a restaurant gift card. But according to the Journal of State Taxation, the typical American home has an average of $300 in unused gift cards. The cards get put in the drawer and forgotten about, thrown out, or only partially redeemed. Between 2005 and 2011, $41 billion in gift cards went unspent. I'm afraid the same kind of thing happens to the grace gifts that God gives us. And when people forget about them, everyone loses out. The person with the gift and the person needing the gift. If you say, well, I have a gift, but I don't know what it is, then I say, well, you're not going to find it unless you look for it. And we're going to help you look for it. And we'll talk about that more next week when we come back to the subject of edifying the church. But in the meantime, you can start by asking God how you can serve. Lord, what do you want me to do? Leave me to my gift so that I can use it for you. I'm sure that's something he'd love to do. And if you're going to fulfill your calling and keep your covenant commitment to edify one another, you need to be involved in the church. Now, by that, I do not mean, please understand what I'm saying. I do not mean you need to volunteer more hours to church ministries, though heaven knows we need it. I'm talking about getting more involved with the church, the people of Christ. How can you build me up if you don't know me? Get to know people at church. Join a Sunday school class or a small group. Invite people over for dinner or for games. Go out for coffee. Work on a car together. Go to a ball game. Spend time with each other. Be intentional about it. In that setting, guess what happens? Your dormant gifts, they come to life. And you get a handle on your calling, and God's church is built up. So, here are your assignments. Just two, simple. Ask God where you can serve. Some of, some of that service might be done actually within the ministry of Lockwood Church. Some of it might be done outside the ministry of Lockwood Church, but it's an extension of what God's doing. Part of your calling. Ask him, what am I supposed to be doing, God? Tell me. And two, get to know people at church. That's where to start. And then next week we'll go on to see what can happen when we start living this way. Let's pray. Thanks for speaking to us, Father. Lord, may we not take what you've spoken to us, your word to us, and hide it somewhere or lose it. Remind us, please, for the sake of Jesus. Amen.